0: Welcome to Deep Dive, or should I say welcome back to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. I hope everyone listening from Japan had a great Golden Week holiday. Our producer, Dave Cortez, took a glorious three weeks off. Dave, how'd you manage that?
1: Well, I earned it, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your parents were in town, right? So it was the first time for them to visit Japan? Yep, their first time. What did you do with them?
1: We left Tokyo almost immediately. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I think if you want to really get a feel for the country itself, you have to see the rest of it, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, Tokyo is its own thing, but it was uh, good to take them out.
0: Yeah, you sent me a really nice photo of Mount Fuji, which I actually posted to the At Japan Deep Dive Twitter account. What did your parents think of Japan?
1: Well, they loved it. They said all of the cliche things that first-timers say, wow, the streets are so clean, wow, look at the children walking by themselves, Uh all of those kinds of things, but... I think what actually struck me about my time off was not showing first-timers around, but actually kind of reflecting on my reaction to things I've done before and kind of noticing that I liked things more than my first couple times. Huh. How so? So, like, I've been to Kyoto several times, but it was many years ago, Mm. and this time I had a completely different reaction the magic of the city seemed to kind of pop out for some reason. And I don't know if that was because I had historical context for things or can talk to the cab drivers in Japanese and and get the more local vibe. But right. I really enjoyed it, and it was super refreshing.
0: Oh, look at you falling in love with Kyoto. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually going to be talking about Kyoto at the end of the show. So our writers Tu Hung Ha and Lance Henderstein went to cover two festivals taking place there. That's Kyotography and Kyotophony.
1: And Noma's happening there, as we talked about a few weeks ago.
0: That's right, yeah. Did you get a reservation?
1: Uh, no, no. <laughs> I am still more or less a budget traveler. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I feel like I'm trying to catch up with the news cycle. I know I'm going to edit this show later, but what else are we talking about today?
0: Well, Japan Times health writer Tomoko Otake will be joining us to discuss the downgrading of COVID-19, which is now on par with seasonal flu. That happened on Monday. But first, we'll check in on one of the big stories that happened while you were on break. The attempted assassination of Prime Minister Fumio Kishida.
1: Ah, uh, yes. That news did sneak through my holiday firewall.
0: Yeah, that was big news. So we'll be back with politics reporter Gabriele Navaji to tell us more about that. On April 15th, just over three weeks ago, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was attending a pre-election rally at Kazaki Port in Wakayama. He was about to give a speech when an object was thrown in his direction, landing about a meter from where he was standing. Security shielded the Prime Minister from the object, which turned out to be a homemade pipe bomb. The Prime Minister escaped unharmed, while the alleged attacker, 24-year-old Ryuji Kimura, is currently being held by authorities. With me to talk more about what happened is politics reporter Gabriele Ninivaji. Gabriele, thanks for joining us again on Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. Gabriele, this attack took place on a Saturday. Where were you when you first heard about it?
2: I was at home. It was around 11.45 on Saturday morning, mm-hmm. and I was about to make some lunch uh, for myself when I got a notification on my phone through the NHK app first, a notification which I ignored initially. <laughs> okay. and then I received another notification from one of our colleagues, and that was when I realized that uh, this was something big, actually. Mm. So then I got in touch with my colleagues and started sort of frantically trying to understand what was going on down in Wakayama. After we found out that the prime minister, uh, Kishida, wasn't going to cancel his plans to do stump speeches in Chiba, in the afternoon, I rushed there to see what security looked like. Okay, so he was the target of an attack in
0: the morning, but kept on the campaign trail and was back in front of crowds later on that day.
2: Correct, yeah. So he himself actually decided not to uh, cancel his plans and uh, then flew to Chiba, where he spoke uh, in support of the local candidate, actually, around 5 p.m.
0: Right. So the show must go on. Yeah. What was the uh, security
2: like in Chiba? So I would say that there wasn't any major difference. So there was some distance between the speakers and the audience. But still, uh, Kishida himself uh, went to shake hands with the public after he spoke. Mm. Um, So we'll talk about this later, but it's important for Japanese politicians to keep that direct contact with the voters. And so that was still there, actually, which was surprising for some of us, I would say. Right. So what do we know about the man
0: accused of throwing this say, explosive device?
2: So at this point, we do know a bit about uh, the guy, uh, Yuji Kimura. Mm-hmm. He's 24 years old, and he comes from uh, Kawanishi, which is a city in Hyogo Prefecture, uh, western Japan. After Kimura threw the pipe bomb in Kishida's direction, just as the prime minister was about to start his speech in Saikasaki... He was held down by a couple of local fishermen who became sort of national heroes for the next couple of days. And they even received a call from Kishida himself. Right.
0: This attack was like all over social media. So that's where a lot of people would have seen these fishermen.
2: Yeah. Going back to Kimura, he has kept uh, completely silent since the moment he was brought to the police station in Wakayama. And in the days following the accident, the police searched his house and found some gunpowder. And a quick look at his record shows that Kimura had sort of uh, harbored a grudge toward Japan's political system for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And he had filed a lawsuit against the state asking for damages for mental distress over the fact that he was unable to run for office himself. Hmm. So in Japan, there's this rule that you need to be at least uh, 30 years old to run for the upper house. And there's quite a high initial deposit that you need to pay in order to run. That deposit amounts to uh, around uh, 3 million yen, which is approximately 22,000 US dollars. What was Kimura's upbringing like? So according to media reports, Kimura had quite a tranquil childhood in a suburban neighborhood in Kansai, in a house with a little garden and a garage. And he apparently dreamt of being a patissier or an inventor. And in recent years, he had apparently taken a passion for gardening and spent a lot of time in his room playing guitar. Mm, This doesn't
0: sound like a guy who, you know, by the age of 24 would allegedly want to assassinate the prime
2: minister. Right. But it was clear from the beginning that the guy had an interest in politics and expressed a strong discontent with the current state of Japan's political world, especially, I would say, toward the alleged privileges that Japanese politicians, especially at a high level, enjoy.
0: Now, this all came about nine months after the assassination of former prime minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, The alleged culprit in that case, Tetsuya Yamagami, has yet to go to trial, but it seems like there are a lot of similarities between that incident last year and the one we
2: saw last month. Okay. I think there seems to have been a lot of crime in the news recently, but, you know, Japan is still a pretty safe uh, society with low levels uh, of crime compared to other countries of its size. Mm. And it's important to say that what we saw with Kishida and Abe isn't really unheard of in Japan. So there's been other cases of assassinations. And in 2007, the mayor of Nagasaki, Icho Ito, was shot in the back near a train station in Nagasaki by a senior member of a crime syndicate. Mm. And five years earlier, in 2002, LDP lawmaker Koki Ishii was stabbed to death by the leader of a right-wing group. And in 1994, former Prime Minister Morihiro Hosokawa was shot while in a hotel in Tokyo but escaped unharmed. So, strictly speaking, if you're comparing these two recent acts of violence, uh, which have come within a year of each other, there are a few more similarities. Okay. So, both took place in Kansai, Abe was shot in Nara, and Kishida was attacked in Wakayama. Both were allegedly done by perpetrators working alone, what people usually call lone wolves. And both incidents occurred during uh, public stamp speeches, although Abe was speaking while he was shot, and he wasn't a prime minister at the time, while obviously Kishida is the incumbent prime minister and was about to start a speech.
0: Okay, so yeah, these um, public stump speeches, as we kind of alluded to before, they're just public events. There is minimal security. They're usually done in front of train stations, and it's just a good way for politicians to actually meet members of the public.
2: Correct, exactly. As I said earlier, it's important for politicians to this day to keep that contact, which in Japanese, it's called skinship. Okay. Which is this uh, sort of Japanese-English term. Right. And uh, so they need to secure venues around big stations usually, uh, but there's very minimal security. There's no uh, back checks, there's no metal detectors, and security is kept at minimum overall, I would say. But things are going to change, I think, in the next few years. Mm. For this, returning to the the comparison between Mm. the two cases, both cases saw weapons which were homemade.
0: Right. Speaking to the Japan Times, the Prime Minister said, and I'll quote him on this here, Strangely, I didn't feel like my life was at risk. I was thinking of how it would affect the people who came, how it would affect the many voters and the election itself. I also thought about how the incident would impact the G7 summit and other important diplomatic events. So first off, he mentioned the election, which took place April 23rd. Did the assassination attempt give Kishida's Liberal Democratic Party a boost at the
2: polls? Not really, no. Shinzo Abe was assassinated the day before an election, and people thought then there would be a significant turnout for the LDP, but there was just a slight uptick. Right. This time in April, the LDP won four out of five constituencies, uh, but the race was actually tighter than expected in two. Constituencies, the first one is the fifth, constituency in Chiba, and the second one is the second constituency in Yamaguchi, which is a prefecture in southern Honshu, and Yamaguchi is where Abe comes from. So there was no kind of rush of support, electorally speaking.
0: Probably a bigger issue of concern, uh, Kishida also mentioned the upcoming G7 summit, which takes place in Hiroshima the weekend of May 19th. Has security been tightened ahead of that meeting? Yes, definitely. Okay.
2: Hiroshima, the city, is quite big. There's over 1.2 million people. And the area around the venue of the summit, uh, Ujina Island, which is approximately six kilometers south of central Hiroshima, will be entirely closed off to the public. And traffic would probably be stopped uh, for inspection.
0: Hmm.
2: At the moment, we don't have the official schedule, but rumors say that the leaders will visit the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, which is obviously very big a touristic attraction in the city. And that obviously means that uh, security will be tied in not just around the venue, but in the entire city. So I personally expect massive dispatches of police and a lot of waiting to get pretty much anywhere.
0: Yeah, whenever there's an important political event in Tokyo, or even outside of Tokyo, you can usually notice an uptick in security at train stations especially. Um, if anyone's listening in Hiroshima who has seen a big difference in police presence, then reach out to us at, deep at japantimes.co.jp. Just be curious to know what you're seeing. Gabriele, you're heading to Hiroshima to cover the G7 next week. We look forward to your reporting and, well, stay safe, man.
2: (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys.
0: This week, the Japanese government officially downgraded COVID-19 from a Class 2 disease to a Class 5 disease under the Infectious Diseases Control Law. This puts the no-longer-so-novel coronavirus on the same level as seasonal flu, and it means we'll be saying sayonara to a range of antivirus measures introduced during the three-year pandemic. Japan Times health reporter Tomoko Otake is here to explain to us what this reclassification means to people living here and visiting. Tomoko, welcome back to Deep Dive.
3: Thanks for having me. First
0: of all, I guess, how did officials come to this decision to downgrade COVID-19?
3: So Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced the downgrade in January as part of the With Corona strategy.
0: So With Corona, that's a Japanese term that means to live with the coronavirus, correct?
3: Correct. And so Kishida said that it would take about three months to prepare for the transition. And the transition came in stages. um, Before the actual downgrade, Japan lifted indoor mask recommendations on March thirteen. And this is long after many Western countries moved to remove such guidance. Mm -hmm. So now any precautionary measures are up to businesses and individuals. And then last month, just before the Golden Week holidays, the government removed what was left of the border restrictions. People don't have to submit proof of vaccination or negative PCR tests when they enter Japan.
0: Okay, so this decision has been playing out over the past few months and then May 8th was the official downgrade day. So where do we stand at the moment with regards to COVID? Are people still getting it?
3: Um, Since the start of the pandemic, a total of 34 million people in Japan have been infected and close to 75,000 people have died. Okay, We've had eight waves and the last one was in the winter. At the moment, things are calmer and the number of newly infected people per day stands out around 10,000 or less. Mm-hmm. This is uh, way lower than at the peak of the past waves when Japan recorded more than 250,000 new cases a day.
0: Is there a chance that we could see any other waves in the future?
3: I think so. Um, experts believe that uh, there's gonna be a ninth wave mm. because um, people would be less vigilant with the downgrade. Mm-hmm. And there will be more people coming in and moving around the country in general.
0: Right. So do we know when a wave could possibly happen?
3: Well, experts don't know for sure, but uh, waves have always happened in the summer, in 2021 and 2022. It also depends on whether there's a heat wave. And when there's a heat wave, temperatures go up and people go inside and they turn their air conditioners on and shut the windows That increases the chance of catching COVID.
0: So who is still most at risk of catching COVID-19? Or should I say, who's most at risk from getting sick from it?
3: So anyone can really catch it. But as was the case for the past three years, uh, the elderly people and people with underlying conditions are most at risk of getting sick.
0: Mm. Will testing still be covered by the government?
3: No, patients are going to have to pay 10 to 30% of all the medical costs as they normally do under the public health insurance system. Mm. And COVID drugs that have been approved recently are quite expensive, so the government will continue to cover those, at least until the end of September.
0: Has there been any talk of more booster shots to keep our immunity
3: up? Yes, a fresh booster drive started this week, but that's only for high-risk people, like people over 65 medical workers and those with underlying conditions. Okay, But for the rest of us, uh, there will be another booster made available in the fall if they want to take it. And then there's a vaccination program for children aged uh, 5 to 11, but that's ongoing at the moment because uh, the program started later for them.
0: Okay. Speaking of children, how is this official downgrade going to affect them?
3: Well... The education ministry has a manual for dealing with COVID at schools and revisions go into effect this week. So for example, students won't need to report their temperature every day anymore and they won't have to take time off if their close contacts like their parent gets COVID.
0: Another big part of the COVID era was masking. Japan, having this entrenched culture of masking already, seems to be a bit slow on giving up this aspect of prevention. So, what are the rules surrounding masking right now?
3: So, in March, Japan relaxed masking recommendations both indoors and outdoors, and decisions are left up to individuals and businesses. Okay. The government still, though, asks uh, people wear masks in high-risk areas like hospitals or maybe crowded trains. But basically, it's up to you.
0: Right. All of this really feels like the age of the pandemic, which has consumed a huge chunk of our lives and our thoughts, might be coming to an end. What do you think the overall legacy of the pandemic is going to be in Japan?
3: I think it's going to take more time for people to reflect on it. Uh So it's going to be hard to say what the legacy is at this moment. For me, I think um, being able to work remotely and have online chats often uh, with anybody, um, regardless of where they live, is like really the biggest change that we've gone through and it's going to really stay.
0: Right, right. You were saying earlier to me that you were speaking to sources more through video chat.
3: That's right. It's much easier now to set up an online chat. Mm -hmm. Before I used to like call people and didn't really have a chance to look at their faces. Okay. Now... You know, it's so easy to really kind of ask for online chat and they sometimes show you like slides and stuff as well. So it really is accessible.
0: Right. I guess it's going to leave a lasting legacy in the world of business, especially when it comes to teleworking. And just that was a huge step for, I think, Japan to make the leap to kind of like just working from home every now and then or workations for example
3: that's right but i think a lot of businesses have already decided to go back to the office Mm. so um i was talking with friends of mine uh, last week and they were saying that they have mostly gone back to the office completely wow so how about
0: in the world of science in japan what kind of like impact has the pandemic had on people in the health industry for example
3: Right. So I've been covering the pandemic response in Japan uh, for a while. And I've really realized that Japan lagged behind others in terms of like uh, vaccine development and drug development. Mm. And it's kind of like taught Japan a huge lesson on what to do when another pandemic like national crisis hits. Mm. And uh, Japan is moving in the right direction in terms of like trying to move more quickly to the pandemic, but there's a lot still to go.
0: Well, Tomoko Otake, thanks very much for coming on Deep Dive.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: If you've been living in Japan throughout the pandemic, then you're bound to have noticed the difference the return of overseas tourists has made when it comes to crowded streets and pricier hotels. One city that's on every tourist's list of places to visit is Kyoto and it feels like Kyoto's having a bit of a moment when it comes to big-name events. Before Deep Dive's Golden Week hiatus, we talked about the Noma pop-up, and here with us now to review a pair of festivals that took place in Kyoto are Japan Times culture critic, Tu Hung Ha. Hello, Tu. Hi. And contributing writer and photographer, Lance Henderstein. Hello. Hello. The two of you covered Kyotography and Kyotophony. to that last one. How are we pronouncing that? It's Kyotophony. (laughs) Kyotophonie. Okay, French accent. (laughs) So out of these two, Kyotography is the elder. Kyotophony debuted this year. I know that you both attended uh, events for both of them, but two, maybe you can explain these two festivals to our listeners.
4: Sure. Kyotography has been going for 11 years. It's a photography festival that's spread out all over the city of Kyoto. And this year, the organizers, who are French, I wasn't just being random, um, debuted a music festival called Kyoto Phony that focuses on world music.
0: Okay. Lance, you covered Kyotography for us last year. How did this year's festival differ from last year's?
5: Well, one, the borders of Japan were open. So uh, the theme of the festival this year was border, uh, appropriately enough. Last year was one. Uh, the theme was one. Uh, they had 10 female photographers from Japan. Uh, it was very focused on Japan itself. Mm. And the uh, sticking together during the pandemic. Um, This year really felt like trying to get back to form. And then with the addition of the music festival, it was much more festive, much more open. You had tourists everywhere. Uh, Yeah, it it was completely night and day as far as the mood of the festival this year.
0: Okay. Were there any exhibitions that you found particularly interesting?
5: Uh, Yeah, the original intent of the festival was to, you know, speak truth to power, to be a new medium, um, to talk about the effects of the earthquake, the Tohoku earthquake and the radiation coverage. They were concerned about that, so they decided to make this festival. So there's always been a social component to the festival. This year felt a little bit lighter. But one in particular that was kind of tailor-made for the theme of border was a uh, Spanish photographer, César Desfouli. Uh, his uh, exhibition, Passengers, focused on mostly men, uh, but young people trying to make their way to Europe for to claim asylum for various reasons. Initially, he shot them on a boat, uh, 118 people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nice thing was that he followed up. And now he's he's really added depth to this by following the men through their lives, some of them successfully resettling in Europe, some having to go back to their own country and um, in, in various stages of success or, or failure at their attempts in asylum. And I thought that was, that was very deep. Another sort of socially minded project was uh, by Kazuhiko Matsumura. He is a reporter for Kyoto Shimbun mm-hmm. for many years and now making his way as a sort of a cross between a fine art photographer and a photojournalist. Um, his exhibition, Heartstrings, which is being held at Hachiku-an, it's a machia, it's a 100 years old, mm-hmm. a really beautiful location. And I, that is focusing on dementia. And uh, he did an interesting thing with uh, the curator and, and sort of his partner on this project, uh, Yumi Goto. Uh, she does a lot of uh, bookmaking workshops and this kind of thing. Okay, uh, They tried to simulate what it's like to have dementia. Um, so in addition to the photos of family members and the photos that he's taken. I don't want to give away too much, but there are media in the room that sort of simulate what it's like to forget or what it's like to forget if you've eaten, to forget if you've told your spouse something or not. And I I thought it was really effectively done. It was beautiful, but it also had some depth to it. That one I would highly recommend everyone see. Two, did you check out any of the exhibitions?
4: Yeah, I was just going to say that I thought the Matsumoto exhibit was super moving I guess I don't want to give spoilers, but I did find myself sort of obsessing over the possibility of losing my memory, which is something I do all the time, but... um, really came to a head that day. but I, I think it, it was a little bit unusual um, the use of non-traditional photography paper, I would say.
5: Yeah I mean the, the paper choices, that's part of Yumi Goto. They run a bookmaking course called Reminders Photography Stronghold, okay. um, which a lot of photographers have used to create their books, their monographs. Um, they nearly always win awards at ARL and Perry Photo and other uh, photo events around the world. And um, so, yeah, they really focus on paper stocks, on on the presentation of the photos themselves and the textures and this kind of thing. So it's it's very tactile. Yeah, it was yeah. really
4: beautiful. I also liked an exhibit by Yu Yamauchi. Mm-hmm. He's known for doing these kinds of extreme isolation projects. He spent five months consecutively um, living in a mountain hut on Fuji over four years. So a total of 600 days. He just stayed there and he would wake up and photograph the dawn every day above the cloud line. Mm. And um, from then, he started doing these kind of long isolation projects. Um, he just was traveling to Yakushima over the course of nine years. Now he's living in like some remote place in Nagano, sort of becoming his thing. Mm. Um, and I was quite interested in the Yakushima photos, especially because I'm just it's a, I'm a big fan of the place. And so I thought he really captured um, the sort of monstrous quality of these very, very old trees that the region is known for. And also just like the idea of the sort of monastic living that produces art. It was actually my first time at the festival, um, so I didn't really know what to expect. Like there wasn't one central location where all the exhibits were. They're sort of spread out in all these maybe hard to access, like very, very old, very traditional um, Kyoto-style buildings. And you're sort of re-delighted each time to see how the how the space is used as a collaboration between uh, the photographer, the art, and the curators. Um, so I think that was quite stunning in many cases.
5: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's what makes Kiotography so special, is that it's not essentially located one gallery with a ton of artists in it. It's they They really curate specific places that you usually wouldn't be able to get access to, like... One great example is uh, Yuriko Takagi. She's a photographer who's been around for a long time. Worked with uh, Issei Miyake. She's a fashion photographer mainly. She presented uh, an exhibition called Parallel World at Nijojo Castle, which is, I mean, it's it's breathtaking. It's one of the biggest castles. I don't know if it might be the biggest castle in Kyoto, and they really filled the space well. Just huge prints of her fashion work alongside um, some documentary work that she had done in, I think, 12 countries uh, in black and white, then filled another room with handmade prints um, at waist level on all of these uh, podiums, just really, really beautifully curated. And uh, she had the work to back up the venue, which is, is maybe mm, the only okay. weak or a difficult part is sometimes the work doesn't justify the venue mm, Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate but she she you know is a master of what she does so it, it was it was really impressive
4: every single one yeah was just you could have spent many minutes just staring at each one um they were all really different and just absolutely stunning
0: lance as a photographer yourself what do you want to see at photography in the future
5: i i mean Variety always, you know, difference. Uh, you don't want to get to one note. And I guess I can draw a contrast from last year to this year. Last year, very fine art, very um, socially minded. This year, a little, you saw a lot of uh, fashion photographers kind of creeping into the space of fine art photography, which can work. In the case of uh, Yuriko Takagi, it works. Um, some other photographers, maybe you could feel that, it, you know, if you put a logo on it, it could be an ad campaign. Right. Mm. And that that for me, I'm like, why is that here that, you know, there's plenty of that around. You can see it ever, everywhere on every billboard. So if you're going to get access to these kind of beautiful spaces, you sort of have to justify with the work, how, whatever style it is. I don't, you know, I'm not going to say a particular style it needs to be there. It doesn't even need to have a social uh, aspect, but the work needs to be on the level Um to justify the space given to these people because it, it, they are very lucky the artists doing these exhibitions all of them expressed that they felt extremely lucky to be able to exhibit in spaces like this it's really rare chance
0: yeah
4: would you say that it felt phony
0: <laughs> Well, speaking of the new edition kyoto was the group's first stab i believe at adding a musical component to you reviewed that one for the japan times what was your take on how things sounded for this debut
4: So there's nothing to compare it to as it was the first edition. But I thought for a first try, there was a lot of intriguing work. The sort of crown jewel performance was by Salif Keita, who's from Mali, and is considered to be a pioneer of Afropop and is called the Golden Voice of Africa, which Mm. is that's a pretty high bar for uh, expectations. Um, But I I do think they were met. Um, I wasn't familiar with his work before, but I mean, it was just... The amount of detail and care that was put into the performance was, you could really feel all of it. So first there was a sort of pre-performance at a 128-year-old martial arts hall that was very beautiful. And then the the opening main performance was at um, Komyoin, which is 632 years old with an 84-year-old garden that Keita sat in um, with his two accompanists. And um, yeah, I mean, everything just seemed so perfectly planned even the rain
3: Mm. um
4: because it's kyoto i mean everything it's just high touch sort of like extremely curated extremely you know the first time you go to kyoto you feel that everything was like put there by like a little like a bird you know like or like a team of tiny bird designers (laughs) Sean, you're looking at me like you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm thinking like Snow White? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sleeping
5: Beauty. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. But, you know, I think that over time, if you go to Kyoto enough, it can start to feel a bit stale. And I think that this marriage of, you know, really kind of over the top, extremely beautiful garden, so manicured with the kind of the moodiness of the weather and with this type of performance, which is really not ever done in this type of space, all just seem to kind of come together and give something fresh, I think, to to the city and to the the architecture that you see in this city. And I think that is what the organizers are going for. And in that sense, I think they succeeded. Um, it's, you know, it is risky to try a new creative endeavor in a place like
0: Kyoto, which is celebrated for never
4: changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was, um, yeah, I really appreciated that.
0: You said there was like a lot of intriguing work there. What were some of the other performances? <laughs>
4: um, there was a pairing of two musicians at Club Metro, which is a venue that's underground in the metro. Um, that I thought was mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> is that that? That's how journalists talk, right? Um, yeah.
0: <laughs>
4: um, so, a Brazilian musician named uh, Lucas Santana, who was just so sort of like easy and joyous and exuberant and loose. Um, I really enjoyed his band perform. Um, And that was immediately followed by a performance by Fuyuki Yamakawa, who is a Japanese vocal percussionist. He uses his hands and fists to sort of bang on his head um, and then amplified those sounds throughout the club in a way that was like pretty satanic in a (laughs) cool way, question mark. Um, And I think that, you know there's a lot to be said for experimental like music and there's you know i think the audiences should be challenged but i wasn't really sure why these two performances were paired up like who is the audience who's trying to pay for this like so i thought that was a confusing curatorial choice but i think you know again i support the sort of the creative risk that was taken
5: gotcha i think that's the uh The advantage of picking a theme like border is you can, you know, kind of (laughs) post-hoc rationalize anything. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. you can say, like, this genre doesn't go together, that's because that's the theme.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tu and Lance, thanks for uh, joining us on Deep Dive. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sean. My thanks to everyone who came on the show today. Gabriele Ninabaji, Tomoko Otake, Tu Hung Ha, Lance Henderstein, and of course, our producer, Dave Cortez. Dave, are you all uh, caught up on the news now?
1: Yep, all caught up. (laughs) Okay.
0: If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please be sure to tell a friend and leave us a rating or review on whatever podcasting platform you use. Both those things will help others find the show. Jason Jenkins helped with the research for this week's episode. The outgoing song was written and produced by Oscar Boyd. And our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, I'm Sean McKenna. Dave, do you want to do the honors? Potsukaresama. sama. Thank you.